0: This podcast is a recording from the May 14, 2007 meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics from the Willard Intercontinental Hotel in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit www.knightcommission.org. The first session was Academic Integrity, Report on the NCAA Academic Performance Program and the Recommendations to Improve Academic Performance of Baseball Players. Panelists for this session were Walter Harrison, Kevin Lennon, and Kevin Weiberg. Panelists discussed newly released NCAA academic data and discussed the progress, trends, and challenges presented. Previous data showed that a significant percentage of baseball, basketball, and football teams must improve their academic performance to avoid penalties for failing to meet minimum academic benchmarks. In response to the overall low academic performance of baseball players in particular, The NCAA convened a special committee to study whether sports-specific reforms were needed to enhance those athletes' academic performances. The NCAA Board of Directors recently passed a comprehensive package of rules changes proposed by this committee. The new rules, most of which will take effect in August of 2008, will impose roster limits on the number of scholarship players, minimum individual financial aid packages, additional APR-based penalties, and dis- disincentives to discourage athletes from transferring during this session the Commission and panelists discussed whether the academic reforms improved academic performance particularly in men's basketball football and baseball whether there is any resistance to the full implementation of the current program and tiered penalty structure whether the strategies utilized by the baseball working group should be applied to other sports and other challenges that remain Walter Harrison has been President of the University of Hartford since 1995. He chairs the National Collegiate Athletic Association's Executive Committee and its Committee on Academic Performance. The Committee on Academic Performance designed the Academic Performance Program and is charged with its implementation. Kevin Lennon has served as Vice President for NCAA Membership Services since 1998. The membership services staff provides compliance, athletic certification, academic eligibility, and legislative interpretation services for the NCAA and the public. And Kevin Weiberg has been commissioner of the Big 12 Conference since 1998. Prior to joining the Big 12, Weiberg worked in conference operations for almost 10 years at the Big 10 Conference.
1: We're going to hear from Walt Harrison, who's, of course, president of the University of Hartford, has been on the... Uh, NCAA Division I Board for a number of years and chairs the Committee on Academic Performance. Uh, Kevin Lennon who is now the Vice President for Membership Services but has been working on this particular project for many, many years. And Kevin Weiberg who is a former colleague of mine at the University of Maryland and now Commissioner of the Big 12 Conference. So. Gentlemen, we look forward to hearing your report and then uh, engaging you in some dialogue uh, following that.
2: Thanks. I I think I'll start, uh, I must admit I've never been podcast before so (laughs) if I I appear a little nervous it's because I'm a rank amateur. uh, In in many respects uh, what you're going to hear this morning is really the fruits of your labor both uh, individually, because there's several people on this board, as Rich just said, who served on the NCA board uh, when academic reform was really fermenting. Um, and there are four or five of you around the table who have worked on that board with me during my five years on it. Uh, but in another real sense, it's the, it's the Knight Commission that's responsible for all of this. Uh, It's almost 20 years ago that the Knight Commission uh, began uh, a very steady, successful, and articulate drumbeat that higher education had to get uh, control of the academic part of intercollegiate athletics. And um, what what you'll hear uh, this morning and what you've heard for several years now and what I am sure you will hear for several years in the future is really a successful result of the Knight Commission's work. So uh, I, as chair of the Committee of Academic Performance, always uh, think about the people on this commission at its, at its inception and their clarion call for uh, improvement of academic success as student-athletes, and that, uh, I don't mean this in any real maudlin way, that really guides my own sense of what's right and what's fair as we make our way through this. Uh, process. So what I think you're going uh, to hear today are um, three things. Uh, first of all, a little bit of the history of uh, how we got to where we are. There are people on this commission who are new to this and there are some of you who have far preceded me in this effort. So I'll try to be brief on that part but supply a little bit of context for the later presentations and then you're going to get a look at the data that we now have on uh, three years of uh, APRs, the measurement for uh, the real-time measurement of how student-athletes are doing. And what that tells us about uh, where we have been and where we need to go in academic reform. And then from Kevin Weiberg, you'll hear uh, about the baseball academic enhancements that were passed by the board about three weeks ago. Kevin and I had the pleasure of serving on that committee together. Uh, which we think is a um, is a really uh, perfect example of the kind of reform of a sport that's uh, that's important and necessary if student athletes are going to succeed in the classroom as well as on the field. So let me just begin uh, very briefly by uh, talking about the history of this. I mentioned that the real uh, motivation for academic reform came from the Knight Commission and uh, its its very first report. Um, The board of the MCA just around the year 2000 uh, started to get uh, uh, significantly interested in this and people like Britt were um, instrumental in uh, the initial discussions of this. The board was very clear that it wanted um, any decisions made about academic uh, improvement in athletics to be driven by data and throughout our process. The uh, the recommendations we've made and and the the processes we've implemented have been driven by what data tell us, not by anecdote, not by uh, personal experience. And I think that's proven to be a very wise example. Um, So the board, um, between about 2000, I joined the board in 2002, and there were several of you who were meeting in the mornings as a working group to help sift through all this data. Uh, that was provided by the MCAA and by consultants. And, and uh, by 2004, we had uh, actually implemented a uh, Committee on Academic Performance, and I've chaired that since its inception. We began to make uh, policies and uh, establish uh, ways of measurement that would measure two things, a year-to-year performance, um, which uh, we call uh, contemporaneous penalties—not the greatest name in the world—but that means we're measuring how student athletes are doing term by term and year by year. And that, um, that those are uh, that's contemporaneous performance. And then what we call historical performance, which equates to a kind of graduation rate study, we call it a graduation success rate. So we have these two measurements: the APR and the GSR and uh, between them we believe we can measure how students are doing uh, in real time and then over an historical period and what you're going to hear from Kevin in just a minute is uh, what we've compiled having uh, compiled a considerable amount of data now. Um, Let me just say a word about where we are after all of this. Um, I think that we have established a culture in intercollegiate athletics now that uh, is beginning to understand the importance of uh, success rate for college athletes. Um, I think you're all aware of this, but let me, let me make this clear. Um, athletes in all sports but three, as a general rule, are extremely successful in the classroom and in most cases are more successful than non-athletes. Um, So, when you discuss sports like uh, soccer or golf or uh, women's basketball, in fact, you discuss any women's sports, um, they uh, do (coughs) uh, very well academically. There are three sports that have significant academic uh, problems, football, men's basketball, and baseball. Kevin will talk a bit about baseball in a minute. the two sports that I think we're going to have to, to work on in the future are basketball and football. And Kevin will give you a sense of what the data look like there. We think we're at a very crucial period right now because we have well-established procedures. We believe our data is defensible and uh, clear and accurate. Um, but we're coming to the point where um, uh, what we call the small squad adjustment is about to go away. What is a small squad adjustment? It's what uh, some people would call a margin of error, um, what statisticians call a confidence boundary. It was an effort to say that until we had counted a certain number of athletes, we wanted to give teams the benefit of the doubt. But next year we will have reached the point that for all but the smallest squad sizes, um, we will have had enough counters so that the small squad adjustment will no longer, quote, protect some teams. And you will begin to see more and more teams, uh, unless they're able to improve, you'll, you'll see more and more teams subject to penalties. I think that will cause a certain kind of outcry among coaches. And um, it will be important to, for all of us to be, uh, to be clear and steady in our response that um, what we're really trying to do is to work toward improvement. And what we hope to do with the MCAA is to uh, help coaches work to improve their teams. Uh, to try to channel their energies away from complaining about why some circumstance caused them to have problems and toward um, the notion that, that squads can improve team by team, team, team by team, squad by squad, by, through coaches leadership. Um, it's, I think that's an important role for presidents to play as well. I think the important message, message that I try to tell presidents that is that um, these measurements really are management tools and it's important to uh, sit down with your athletic director and if necessary with the coaches and point out where they are succeeding and where they need uh, work. And um, while they get a lot of public uh, recognition in the newspapers, and in my view that can be helpful, um, it's also important to see that they're, they're private management studies that you should use. So with that in mind, um, let me turn to Kevin and have him uh, go through some of the data that we have, and I uh, think then there'll be a series of questions, Mike. That's great. Thank
3: you, President Harrison. and Thank you for the opportunity again to, to be with you this morning. Uh, just to very quickly uh, echo uh, President Harrison's comment about the leadership the Knight Commission has played in academic reform. It, it clearly has been significant. Uh, the early recommendation of the 90s in terms of presidential leadership of intercollegiate athletics uh, plays itself out in a very real way in the academic reform movement that we're going to talk about today and in particularly now being championed by President Harrison and, and President Miles Brand. Uh, Amy provided you with a lot of material in advance. Um, we're not going to go through slide by slide. I've developed an executive summary and a PowerPoint here that. Uh, will hopefully kind of highlight the critical issues that we'd like you to focus on this morning. Uh, I'm also joined by the managing director of research at the NSA, Todd Petter, who you're going to hear from later as well, but Todd brings a great deal of expertise and is available here for questions as well. Um, one issue, uh, obviously to put in context here, and, and I apologize from the start that some of you have, have heard of this presentation. Many of you have been around the table um, and were a part of developing the academic reform package. Um, but we, we continue to look at this as a package. President Harrison focused a lot on the APR. That's clearly worked its way into the culture of, of our athletic programs. The public is beginning to understand what this measurement of academic success means. But particularly for the new members, I want to, to again share with you the broad context of reform. and. It began with enhanced academic standards. We are expecting more of our young student-athletes. In order to remain eligible, they have to work towards a degree each year to remain eligible. It's our progress towards degree requirements. We have enhanced those particular requirements for all of our student-athletes. About 70% of the current student-athletes on our campuses right now are subject to these new enhanced standards. We use the data to say We know the academic progress of graduates. We know what a graduate does academically after freshman year, sophomore, junior, senior. And for the first time ever at the NCAA, we based eligibility standards on those benchmarks. Seems to make sense. We're very optimistic that that in itself is going to encourage more people to working in meaningful ways towards their degrees. And we're very close to having all of our student athletes, as we grandfather that in, subject to these new requirements. Incoming students, how do we get better prepared students coming into our campuses? Next year, all freshmen will have to complete 16 academic core courses. It was not that long ago when we were at 11 core courses for incoming student athletes. So consistent with reforms in secondary education, consistent with many of your enhanced admissions requirements, the NCA too has stepped up and saying we're expecting more academic courses from our young people in order to come into college better prepared. That often is lost as we talk about academic reform, but but I want to begin with that. Secondly, as President Harrison talked about, we've enhanced the measurements. There's lots of flaws with the federal graduation rate. The NCA on its own has developed two standards that uh, President Harrison talked about. The graduation success rate and the APR. And we'll spend a lot of time talking about the APR rate in a moment. And finally, there's consequences for poor academic performance. Last year, for the first time in the 100-year history of the NCAA, teams were penalized for poor academic performance. They had scholarships taken away from their program if they had not performed well academically. We've never had that before in the history of the NCAA. And conversely, we recognized the top performing teams. And we had about 879 that we just released that were in the top 10% of their sport where we said, these folks are doing it right and let's recognize them. So those three components form the academic reform package uh, and very pleased to say that really all components are now in play and this is again a result of the good work of of all of the presidential leadership. Um, Most of our students, 70% are now subject to the new progress towards degree rules. Sixteen core classes next year. We just released the third year of our APR data. We just released the second year of our graduation success data. We're recognizing those top teams and we're penalizing uh, and we're beginning to enforce those penalties. This year was the first year where we began to enforce historical penalties. And and I'm going to spend just a moment before we move on to kind of ground everyone with what the penalties mean, Um, keeping in mind that the goal isn't to penalize programs. But I will tell you, it is effective in helping to change behavior. The goal is just to have more of our student athletes graduate. If we didn't have to penalize anybody, that would be a great day. And I know that's where the presidents line up. But unfortunately, in this world, you do—you know, you can have the carrot, and you often need the stick as well. Um, and so the penalties are in play. The contemporaneous penalty, to begin with, that we instituted last year and again this year, is a loss of a scholarship. If your team performs poor academically, below a certain cut point. And you also have students who do not return to school and are academically ineligible. They simply leave your campus having been a poor student. You're going to lose that scholarship for a year period of time. And this is the second year in which we have done that. So that is the contemporaneous penalty. Meant to be a warning to change behavior. We all know no coach, no team wants to play. People down. They want to have their full allotment. That's that's a means of getting their attention. The historical penalty, this is the first year where that has come into play and basically we wrote presidents and said your team's performance over the last year is so poor that unless it changes, next year you're going to be subject to additional scholarship restrictions and additional playing season restrictions. You will have to take an entire extra day off. You will simply not be able to be involved with your students for an entire day as one example of the playing season. Uh, You also will have a reduction, a significant reduction in your scholarships. Those letters have gone out to a number of presidents this year, and those are really the significant penalties. The next stage after that, if a team did not respond, is the ban of the postseason competition. And you can imagine how significant that will be. So we are really just two years away from that particular penalty being imposed, and I know that that was one that the Commission actually spoke to in the early 90s in terms of being a meaningful penalty. So you have the contemporaneous and the historical, so I just want to set the table for that. Um, let me share with you a little bit about the APR metrics so you, you get a sense of this. Um, the APR, as well said, is a term-by-term term measurement. Every term is over, you can say, is that student still eligible? And did that student come back to school? Pretty simple. And that's what the board told us to do. Get something pretty simple. E plus R. Were they eligible? Were they retained? Now, all that leads to graduation. If you continue to stay eligible with the new standards, if you continue to go back to school, guess what? At the end of that career, you've got a degree. And that's what we're working towards. What I want you to see on the column that you have there is a score of a 925, just to kind of ground you in 925. If you have a basketball team and every student, all 13, stay eligible and are retained, you have a perfect score of a thousand. So think about that as you kind of ground yourself. A thousand means every student is doing what we're asking. They're all staying eligible and all coming back. A 925 reflects the fact that you have students who either didn't meet the eligibility requirement or didn't come back or both. And so there is kind of a margin in there. And the penalties that we're talking about, the 925 is anchored on the contemporaneous penalty. And the 900 is anchored on the historical penalty. So I want you to begin to think about that. We have a system that says we know that some young people will not stay on campus. We understand that. But you have to have a significant number of young people who fail or don't come back in order to fall below these lines. And you can see what, how these project out. A team that has a 925 projects out at a 59% graduation rate and a 30% federal graduation rate. And a 900 projects out to a 45% graduation rate and a 29% federal graduation rate. So again, APR is the real term-by-term term measurement. But what we're trying to do at the end of the day is make sure that our students graduate. And those numbers reflect where those standards are. Now, the great news is that we have the vast majority of our teams, 87% of all of our teams, over 6,000 teams, are well above the 925. But as Walt pointed out, we have certain pockets that we're going to talk about today um, who are underperforming.
4: Kevin, have those numbers stayed the same, or haven't they moved a little bit in terms of what the projected
2: graduation rates are? They
3: have moved a little bit. And again, one of the things to keep in mind is that these are projected graduation rates. We don't have, at this point in time, until we get a number of years of data, and every student has been subject to the APR, you can say that student population's APR reflects a real graduation success rate. We're not able to do that at this point. And a part of the reason those numbers have adjusted is there have been kind of some tweaks to the system, uh, President Turner, that, that allowed for delayed graduation, bonus points, et cetera, all that have kind of impacted the, the, the numbers there. Okay. Kevin, one other yes. question. Once the historical data kicks in,
1: you, you've got the, the full four years, will you continue to use the contemporaneous
3: uh, measure as well? That That is the thinking at this point in time, but I will tell you it is an active item on the, the committee on academic performance agenda and I think one that folks do want to keep talking about. Um, but the thinking at this point is that those will continue certainly through next year. And it, it carries a different kind of penalty. It is that you can't replace a, a scholarship. That is correct. And that is a critical difference here. The contemporaneous penalty, um, certainly as it plays out next year, that is that student who Right. Fails academically and doesn't come back. If you're then subject to historical penalty, if you're below that 900 that I showed you, the scholarships will be taken on in addition to that. So there will be even there will be more substantial penalties that come because then you have four years of underperformance below the 900, and I think the committee felt like um, that required additional penalties.
2: Could I just add one thing, Brett? I, if some of you. Peter will remember this, and Carol. We we had a long talk about this probably in 2002 or 2003 about whether we needed both measurements. We decided, uh, because we wanted immediate um, uh, results and immediate improvement, that we would adopt the contemporaneous penalties and we'd wait and see what the effect of that had in improvement. So now, as you suggest, we're going to have two measurements, and do we really need two? And I think the uh, I think you would like to wait a couple more years, so I think you're going to show them some third-year data. I'd like to see some other data myself before I thought about it, but it's conceivable that if if the historical penalties by themselves provide enough motivation for improvement, you might not need them both. Yes, Pete? you described
5: the historical penalties as a consequence uh, only of falling below 900 on the APR. Without uh, uh, additional or explicit consideration of the graduation success rate. And you show that correlation, but that's just a statistical observation. There's no reason to assume that a particular squad with a 9-10 uh, APR uh, has a 40, what is the 45, whatever the number was, uh, has a 45% graduation success rate. Uh, does the evaluation process also look at the GSR? Or does it just assume that correlation?
3: In terms of granting a waiver or saying that- No,
5: no, no. In, in terms of applying historical penalties. Oh. You describe penalties as just a consequence of a, low, a uh, low APR, which means there are no penalties that are a consequence of a, of a GSR below 45%. Is that right?
3: Yeah, you're exactly right. The historical penalty at this point is anchored solely to the APR. That's because the graduation success rate is a six-year back look. And the feeling is the APR, because it measures in real time, is where we ought to anchor the penalties. Eventually, President Likens, over time, you're going to have the same populations. I was subject to an APR, and now I'm recorded in a graduation success rate. Once we get to that point, I think I, you envision some linking. Yeah, I, I would hope
5: that GSR would, would at least eventually be an explicit consideration, because that is, after all, what we're striving for an APR is a construct that we've invented for the best of reasons, but the GSR is what you're finally striving to achieve.
3: Let me tell you just a little bit about kind of all sports and then we'll move into very quickly some certain sports specific issues. As you look at these columns here for all sports, on the the left hand side you see the below 925, that's the contemporaneous penalty line, and then below the 900 historical penalty. Look across those. You can see that below 925, with the adjustment, 212 teams this year, even given the break of the squad size adjustment that um, President Harrison talked about, 212 teams had a three-year APR below the 925, and 70 teams were below the 900. Our big issue and big worry is the bottom column. Look what happens when the squad size adjustment goes away and you say, we are now going to anchor this squarely on a 925, you have four years of data, the confidence boundary goes away, then you have about 815 teams, uh, 13% that would be subject to contemporaneous penalty, and 320 teams that would have an APR four years below a 900. and that's obviously what we're spending a great deal of time at the cap level talking about. You so have this I'm other slide. Let me, me yes, ask another question. Mm-hmm.
5: Forgive me. But, but uh, logically, the size of the population being measured for teams with small squad sizes gets larger over years. And so you might think that the margin of adjustment, margin of error, what is the phrase that you use, would each year diminish. So year one, year two, year three, year four, you'd gradually go from 2.12 to 8.15. But as I understand what you've just said, there's a discontinuity. You have squad size adjustment uh, at a constant rate for three years, and then bang, it jumps to none. Is that
6: correct?
3: That, that is correct. But let me clarify one thing. We're eventually, you're going to have a four-year rolling average for your APR. So your first year will drop off, and you will pick up the remaining four. There is a feeling, and Todd can certainly speak to that, that once you have about 30 observations and four years of data, I mean four years of that team, that you have some level of confidence that we know how they're performing as a group, that that we feel pretty comfortable that there is a trend line that's been developed, and if you put together four years below a certain mark, I think there's a feeling that um, there's a real problem there.
5: I'm just observing you've created for yourself a radical discontinuity. And you could have staged it over four years, making it tougher each year for four years.
3: Yeah, it's interesting because I think the staging actually probably took place, President Lykins, through the waiver process. And and I'll get that in a bit as it relates to improvement. Because one of the critical components here is, you know, people have dug themselves into a hole. and what we're trying to do is is show people the light and have them get out of that hole and that's where improvement. So we have seen those that in year 3 showed pretty good improvement and they probably received a conditional waiver saying you're going in the right direction but you were so far below even if you scored a perfect thousand you're still going to be below these lines, and we have teams that are like that. That's where they have been. But what we're trying to do, that's how we've kind of staged that. If you improve them, we cut you a little bit of a break. Uh, very quickly on this broader slide here, and I'm going to point this out for a couple of reasons. Can you go to all of them, Todd? Uh, there is one reason why we're just putting up the men's teams, and that's what Walt said. The women's teams are uh, performing at an outstanding rate, an average of 970 across all women's teams. Uh, I'm going to come and focus on basketball, baseball and football in a moment but as you look at the bottom tier here, uh, this reiterates Walt's point that most of our men's sports are doing a fine job. I mean, if you look at the number of squads that are being penalized, there's a significant difference between the baseball, 46, as you can see in the left-hand column, basketball 35, football, 47 and you begin to work your way down. Um, So again, most are doing very well. That's below the 925. Let's just skip over the other one to really bring home the three. Here are the three sports of most concern. This year, with the squad size adjustment on the left-hand side, this is this year, cutting a break. And for basketball, by the way, to put this in perspective, I believe that's about an 895. Would be about the squad size adjustment, not the 925 you saw 15% of your baseball teams, 10% of your men's basketball, and 20% of your football. That was this year. Next year is the right-hand column. You jump to 35% of all your baseball teams, 45% of all your basketball, and about 40 of your football. Um, that's assuming no changes in behavior. And what we're all hopeful for is that we do see changes in behavior in this current group who are going to classes right now who will be reported next year. But absent any change, those are the kind of numbers that you're looking at. Um, Go back to the 900, if you would. You also have this in your packet, but let me me highlight something. Next year, when the squad size adjustment goes away, in the sports of baseball, basketball, and football, assuming no changes, you'd have 17% of your baseball, 22% of your basketball, and 15% of your football would be subject to those ramped up penalties. And that may be the letter to the president for the first time. If they already received one this year, it would be additional scholarship restrictions and playing seasons. And once you get yourself in this category of historical penalties, you have to then have three years of good performance without triggering the next occasion. And I want to emphasize that so if you get a letter, And the next year you do fine, but the following year you slip below it, you then are subject to occasion two penalties. And then occasion three penalties are the postseason ban. So that's just a huge point of emphasis in terms of the need for changing behaviors and the need for improvement. And I'm rounding the bend here. Let me just hit a couple of trends for you. Uh, Some of these are encouraging. we did see the lower end of the distribution. Those who were very, who were performed pretty poorly the first two years, seem to be moving up. There seems to be some power behind the lines that we have drawn, the 900, and the 925, to encourage those at the low end to move above the line, and, and we're encouraged by that.
0: 40% of our
3: teams did improve in year three. Many stayed the same. Um, And some obviously did not improve, but at least 40% were moving in the right direction. In the sports of baseball and football, we saw fewer students leaving school while ineligible. So football and baseball uh, seem to have made some adjustments. More students are, again, they're either coming back to school to get themselves right academically, or if they decide to transfer they're doing so while they were eligible. That's all very positive in those two sports. We did not see that trend in the sport of men's basketball. And we've already talked a little bit about the concern when the squad size goes away. Uh, Just in terms of penalties this year, and again, this is the second year in the history of the NCAA where you saw these penalties, 31 teams received a historical penalty. That was the only penalty they received. And 63 received only a contemporaneous. And there were 18 teams who received both. One reason for the discrepancy there is there, again, are some waiver provisions that are made available, particularly for the contemporaneous penalty, particularly as it relates to our low resource institutions, many of whom are historically black colleges, um, where as we put through a waiver process, we were able to uh, um, uh, to provide some levels of relief. Um, Kevin, before you leave that slide,
7: yes.
1: Uh, the, the, on the historical penalty, I, I must have missed something. I thought it was based on four years of data. It's, we only have three right now. Right. So how how would you, weren't you waiting to get four years of data for the historical penalties to kick
3: in? You know, the feeling was, uh, President Kerwin, that because it's only a letter this year, and because we had the three that we were going to send, send that to um, those particular institutions, next year will be the four, and then at the four you actually have the scholarship restrictions okay. kicking in. So the penalty this year was you got a letter. That's right. I see. Uh, let me quickly hit this Improvement Plus model. Uh, this emphasizes again the entire area of improvement. If you're going to receive a waiver from historical penalties, we call it Improvement Plus. The first criteria is you have to improve. If you haven't improved, there's no waiver possibility. And that's quite candidly one of the challenges we're having with the low-resourced or historically black colleges. If You have to improve. That is a condition of receiving relief. If you've improved, then we actually run you through three criteria. You have to, are are you also um, a low-resource institution in terms of just the per capita dollars spent on students or student athletes or the number of students on Pell Grant we have a formula that says improvement plus low resource will give you some relief. or if you improved and you graduate more of your student athletes than your student body as a whole and we do see some of that even for the low performing teams you will receive a waiver and finally if you don't have any uh, or if you um, uh, by sport if you within your comparison of your sport we're performing better than a number of schools in our sport, and we've improved, you will receive a waiver for that. Even with that, you see that a significant number of teams were still penalized, largely because they just didn't improve. And the Committee on Academic performance and the board, I think, continues to emphasize the need for improvement. Secondly, just the improvement plans. We work with every school to develop an improvement plan. We've written the coaches, the ADs. We're here to help. The whole thing is trying to, if you put yourself in a hole, how do you get out of that hole? How do we get more students graduating? That's our emphasis. Uh, and finally, we just, we're continuing to work with our low resource institutions. The board approved a supplemental fund of about $1.6 million that will incrementally go up by about 4.5% over the course of the CBS contract for a grant program targeted specifically at low resource institutions to try to help them um, improve the graduation success of their student athletes. And the very last thing I will tell you is a very important rule uh, that is in play this year um, that says if a student wants to transfer and get a scholarship at their new school, they have to leave the first school eligible. And believe it or not, we never had that as a rule. You could have a basketball player that played in March and then said, I don't like the way the offense is going. I don't like this school. They could drop out of school and another school would simply pick them up and offer them a scholarship and they'd move on their way. This says if you want to get the scholarship, you better finish what you started academically. And anecdotally, we're hearing some great things about the impact that this is already having on young people to say, you've got to stay in school to finish what you started here. And we're very hopeful that that, again, is going to move students closer to the degree, even if they do elect to transfer to a new school. I'm going to stop there. That's probably long enough. Take a question, and then we'll go to. We, on yes, sir.
8: thank you. Yeah, how do the grants help the uh, low um, performing schools? Uh, I'm sorry. How does? Um, oh, the
3: got the language. How do those grants assist? What do they do? The supplemental fund. Actually, we're in a process now. There will be a grant application that would come into the, the national office and overseen by President Harrison's committee. Uh, generally, about a three-year grant program. They have to be very specific about what it is that they're trying to do to improve the academic performance. It's kind of programmatic driven. It could be sending staff to professional development APR sessions on how to do it. It could be uh, enhancing the academic advising unit. They really haven't put specific parameters on it because I think we want to see what we get back from the schools. (coughs) But it's likely that about 33 percent or about 10 percent of our Division I membership fall into that low resource category.
2: Just one uh, point about that. We're going to look for is a specific grant. We want to do this, that, or the other. And then we're going to measure it after year one, year two, and year three to make sure that there's some improvement. And we're also going to ask that they, all of us know, uh, any of us who have led universities know this, but um, we want them to be able to show us how at the end of the grant period of time they're going to be able to pick up some of this burden themselves. So um, we're going to look for specific um, applications the schools know better than we do what they need to, to supplement their athletic funding and then we'll we'll review that and measure it year by year to make sure they're making progress toward that goal
9: okay. uh, I have a question and I'm new to this entire system having graduated 40 some odd years ago <laughs> uh, so but I, it seems to me that in order for all this criteria to work uh, the most important part is initial eligibility. And the reason I say that is um, I think it's great that all these young so-called student athletes get an opportunity to matriculate at different universities, colleges and so forth. But the question I have is aren't we setting them up to fail if in fact we don't really look at what they, what what you're saying 16 core courses a young guy goes in, or a young woman goes in into school. Let's leave out the women because they're doing well. The young guy goes into school, uh, and the, he's faced he's faced with a lot of new issues. Number one, weight room. Number two, practice. Number three, meetings. Number four, all of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden, uh, women dating. This, this whole thing is kind of thrown on him being away from home, uh, and it really, to me, it, it strikes me that I'm wondering if we really have prepared this young person uh, to be able to withstand the pressures, and I mean pressures, because you're competing, he's competing for a position, uh, he's gotten all this publicity, and so on and so forth, and it's all heaped on him. He doesn't have his family surrounding him to support him. He doesn't have his friends around him to support him. And all of a sudden, he's being he's being judged on whether or not he can he can successfully pass uh, major college courses when in fact he may not be prepared to do so. And, and I, this has bothered me. In, in, in 1987 I sent a letter to Cat Foot at the University of Miami uh, stating the fact that I really thought that what's, what's happening in college athletics, this is 87, uh, was, was the fact that we are not, we are really accepting uh, student athletes into programs that they're not qualified to be in. and I'm just wondering what if anything is a way to measure uh, you know because you're talking about a, a, a failure rate as well as a success rate. You're talking about a failure rate of say forty percent or whatever it is in football uh, after, you, after you don't adjust for the <laughs> squad squad size. And you know, have we studied have we studied their failure rates and what can we do to improve that failure rate because it, it, because m- number one they're not going to make it academically number two they're probably going to flunk out of school and so you you're losing you're not only losing an athlete you're losing the person and that individual is something I thought the reason I came on the my commission is because I I'm more in, interested in the individual what happens to that individual if in fact he doesn't make it athletically okay what happens to that individual and I think with, with uh, the way I see it, and I was talking to Mike about it earlier, is that I just don't—I don't know whether or not the schools are prepared financially to ad- to address this situation, or, or uh, are prepared professionally to address this situation.
10: Well, it is an area of real concern, and I think when you talk to um, academic support people at our universities who are confronted with heightened continuing progress rules but are very concerned that they're not seeing a change in student athletes coming in on the front end in terms of their preparedness in the sports that show up here as the primary problem areas. That there is a bit of a disconnect here in the initial eligibility side of the equation. Now as Kevin pointed out, we are going through a, progress, a process of raising core courses. We have to see what that impact may be. I think Todd may be able to speak to some of the, the research in this area. There isn't. Uh, there is some feeling that when the test score cut was removed, that it opened a window for a less well-prepared student um, to be able to be come into our institutions and be immediately eligible, and primarily in these sports. And um, I, th- I think it is a it is a real concern. It's one that we're continuing to look at and. And To talk about I know in my conference it's one frequently raised as an area of concern
9: well Mike my, my, you know Mike was telling me that uh, you know I, I even went in my letter and i don't want to take up a lot of time on the commission'm I'm, I'm sorry, but in my letter I stated that I, I really thought that a lot of these student athletes were, were lacking were lacking even the most remedial courses and that in, in that with the if the university was going to accept or college was going to accept this this young, young person, into school, then, then they should have a way to measure this individual as to how he would compete with the other students in the university. And I'm just, and I'm saying, I think that measurement is not met. And I think that's something that, that, that should be, and if, in fact, he doesn't meet up to the other students, that somewhere, somehow, there should be a different core set of studies for this individual to bring him up to to that level, so that we don't lose him as an individual, not as an athlete, but as an individual. And I think this is something that that schools have been remiss in in doing, and that's probably the main reason why I came on the commission.
4: Nick, I think by the time you, when you wrote your letter in 87, uh, as Walton mentioned and Kevin, that the number of core courses was, uh, you know, 11. I mean, that was the first standard we put in to address exactly what you were saying there, and that is that we were admitting a group of students that were non-athletes that we didn't require the same predictors of success. I mean, here we had institutions, and with everybody else we knew you had to have three years of math or four years of English uh, in order to have a good chance of getting a degree from our institution, but we weren't requiring those of student-athletes, and so what the academic reform movement with proposition 16, 47, and all up down up the line to the 16 core courses, uh, I mean, it was a war on 11, and that was about the time you wrote that letter. And so the 11, and then we went on up to different numbers, and now the 16, and the idea is that to be honest with these student-athletes, we need to say what it is you need to have as a minimum to have a decent chance, depending upon what the graduation rate of your institution is, to get a degree from us. And so that's why it's been coming up. And then, once they're there, to make sure that they progress along the way, and that's what this is all about, sort of phase two of that effort, uh, but but uh, with individual institutions and their varying graduation rates and their requirements and so on, I think the academic support facilities that have come in since uh, the 80s have been incredibly upgraded to try to make sure that these students do have a chance to succeed and do have a decent opportunity based upon the preparation they bring us the support services that are there and the ongoing interest of the coaches uh... and the others in the operation but you uh, you were right on and that's for twenty years really now about twenty five we've been trying to to upgrade the expectations of students and along the way getting criticism for doing it. But what we found, just like we'll find here, is that once the standards are put in place, people do change their, be- individuals, schools, and uh, teams do change their behavior to meet those standards. And, uh, and how they go about doing that, Mike was addressing earlier, but it's, it's been a, an interesting path. But each time we've raised standards, it may take two or three years, but the students have, in their high schools, have adjusted to it. And, uh, you know, the question's got to be then, what's the quality of the courses in the high schools now that we've dropped the SAT scores, and what's the quality of the educational major that the student's coming to when he comes to our universities? And those are all sort of, particularly that last and what I call phase three questions. Uh, but right now, uh, we're trying to to make sure when we get them that they're, they maintain their eligibility, while at the same time making sure, because you're right, they have to bring it with them, and for years we didn't require it, but now we do. Jack, and then uh, Andrew. Uh,
6: Just a quick question. Um, The framework that has been developed over these last few years is very much a framework for assessing institutional performance across a a wide range of sports and contexts. As you think about the development of this over time, how have you thought about the role that this data could play in terms of individual assessment of performance, specifically coaches, athletic directors, presidents,
2: as we go forward? You know I like the point about presidents. <laughs> uh, I, uh, the, um, this is being podcast we talked uh, <laughs> we've talked on and off about whether uh, your uh, academic success should should a coach. Um, the, you could certainly. I think you could pretty much make the argument that coaches are the principal people responsible for recruiting athletes and supporting them as they uh, succeed or don't succeed academically. So then the um, the obvious question is, well, why not establish rates with them and uh, and as they uh, at least make those public? I, I, I think individual institutions would still be able to hire, or should definitely still be able to hire whomever they like, but wouldn't it be interesting if uh, as, along with one ro- loss records, you also had records for how well you had done academically. We've, we've debated doing that. There's some arguments, pro and con. I, I kind of like the in athletic directors, I'll let an athletic director speak to, but <laughs> it to do that for presidents, so that would be a very interesting <laughs> measurement. <laughs> Uh, but the point, I think your your point is a good one. Uh, uh, Nick spoke well, I think, about the obligation that an institution has once it's admitted a young man or young woman. And that's really what this is about. You need to provide them with the support to succeed. You shouldn't admit them unless they can meet certain minimal standards and have the promise of success. And then once admitted, you need to supply them with the support they need in order to succeed academically. And so, those of us who are responsible for that, my personal view would be that some measurement of our success or failure in that is appropriate, but I think we haven't approached it as a committee yet. Andrea, and then Pete.
11: Well, that's exactly... um, what I was going to ask about is what you just talked about when you say you have to admit them if they, if a student can succeed. And I guess what's going on in higher education now is that there's a higher academic profile of most incoming freshmen which further exacerbates the gap between general student admissions and the academic profile of incoming student athletes. And this is not dealing with that, this is helping to exacerbate that problem, and I wonder how you reconcile those two factors. And we were talking last night about the increase in in qualified applicants, and being athletically gifted is a criteria that factors into an admissions decision, obviously, but continues to exacerbate the gap between those that are qualified academically and those that have athletic gifts.
2: Well, and then you have to. What complicates that issue is that different institutions within the NCAA have different gaps. So the gap at Michigan might be far larger than it is at Hartford, which might be uh, even less than it is at. Uh, no offense, East Tennessee. I don't know what East Tennessee's rates are, but um, so you have all these institutions where the admitted student profiles here. The, uh, the athletic student profiles here, and there might be large gaps in some instances and not so large gaps in others. Um, it seems to me, again, back to what I was saying, I think that it, I, I don't have a problem at all with admitting uh, students because they're gifted in one area or another, and in, in our university where we have a very large and, and well-known music conservatory If you can play the clarinet well or the violin well, we don't actually, you might get admitted where you couldn't get into, say, the engineering college with that. Your APR
11: isn't measured when you play the clarinet or the violin. And in this case, you're asking an athletically gifted student to compete in a class against an academically gifted student and suggesting that they be able to perform in a manner um, to compete with that student, and they may be able to compete with that student on the football field, but not necessarily in the classroom, and that's the issue.
2: But, but, but the violinist still has to take our general education courses and succeed. So I, I, what I'm saying is that I think the the issue is providing them with this, admitting them only if you think they can do the work of your institution, and then providing them with the ac- uh, academic support they need. I, I certainly think that... Um, What we're trying to do as an MCAA is to, you know, the um, requirements that Kevin was discussing, we're trying to provide a a floor. And institutions are free to to raise that floor, and many of us do, uh, because we think that our admission to succeed at our institution, you need to do even better than that. But um, for me, the key is the one Nick mentioned, if you admit a young person, Um, You've obligated yourself to helping that person succeed and you need to provide them with the success.
3: I might just add one other point to help clarify. The the data is so rich that on the back end, if we see teams who bring in student-athletes whose academic profile is so different from their student body or from previous teams, and we have seen that exact example they have been cut no break. They deny we have had one team that lost nine football scholarships because you can literally look at an incoming class and see that that class looks different than any other class that you've had academically coming in. And so the school, that's a part of the package here, there's an accountability on the back end that we have never had before. The previous system, was, you know, was one you, on a yearly basis you could simply bring in a new group of student athletes and there was no accountability. So I think we now know that people in terms of their recruiting decisions I think have to walk up to that issue because you cannot survive with large numbers of academic failures. And for the first time it probably is going to hurt you competitively and I don't think it ever necessarily did that to the extent that it does now. Pete Likens and then Henry.
5: Next comments have caused us to focus on initial qualifications, qualifications of students just entering the institution, Uh, and it's important to put that in some kind of context because what you've been describing, of course, work of recent years, focuses on academic performance of students already enrolled. It, It creates this new system, creates an indirect influence on students admitted, because coaches need to have a better shot at the student's success need to be able to guess that they'll be able to perform in order to contribute to the APR. So there's an indirect influence on the coach's selection of entering freshmen. But for years, a decade or more, the the NCAA was focused primarily on the qualifications of incoming students. It went through, as has been noted here, uh, multiple uh, revisions of the NCAA's restrictions on qualifications for incoming freshmen. Uh, That emphasis, I think, has now diminished. Those standards are set. What's changed is the number of academic courses, the 16 credits, the 16 courses. But the, the use of grade point averages and SAT scores, which was the primary emphasis for at least a decade, has now been kind of set aside. And you're trying to influence the, uh, the admission qualifications of incoming freshmen now more indirectly by saying to the coach, you bring that particular kid in, there's a pretty good shot that that kid's going to fail to generate the APR points, going to hurt your team. So I think there will be an increase in, in, in academic qualifications of incoming freshmen because coaches will be more cognizant of their need to perform academically. Uh, in order to protect the team's APR.
12: Henry, I, well, I very much agree with what Peter just said. There is this indirect in um, relationship, but I want to point out the obvious. That, you know, although I agree one thing at a time, these graduation rates are not exactly astoundingly high, <laughs> even um, uh, when you get past the APR cutoff rate. So one reply to that is, well, at a lot of universities, it may not be very high throughout, and that's. President Harrison's point that there are different standards and gaps between athletes and students which don't look the same across institutions. So I take all those points, but I I think one thing that we'll come back to, we're not going to come back to it today, but people throw around the term support services as if this was an unmitigatedly good thing for athletes. Well, it is a good thing in one sense to have academic support services because you now have an obligation to the student athlete you've enrolled to try to help him or her get through the university. But we're now getting very inconsistent standards across the university in that the academic support services exist for athletes that don't exist for students who have to work their way through college, which also leads to lower graduation rates for the multitude of students. And my point here is um, I think, uh, you know, maybe not such an obvious one, maybe it is. But when you think about these comparable graduation rates, now you're having high, you may get higher graduation rates because you're pouring so much money into academic support services. I think it leads to an inequity across universities and a very big problem. It's not the problem before us and I, I think trying to now at least deal with the academic progress rate which will affect the incoming students indirectly but down the line, perhaps, when we think about reform, we're really going to have to think about this issue of what it is to have a university that pours large resources into student athletes, academic support services, but doesn't necessarily do it for other students who may or may not be at risk. Uh,
1: one other, I had one question, then maybe we will hear from uh, Kevin Weiberg. Uh, You you know, all of this started. If, if I don't think we were uh, had in mind that we would end up with a 29% graduation rate, which, just picking up on Henry's point, does seem low. Now, I realize that that's not that's a federal rate. That's not the best way to measure it. That the uh, that it uh, equates to what we call uh, graduate. What was the G? graduation success rate of 45%. But my, my question is this, uh, how, does the, how does the board, the committee, feel about that uh, 900 equating to a 45 or a 29%? Is that sort of the entry point, and we're going to, that would be moved up over time? Or is this sort of where we are and where we intend to be for quite some time?
2: I had this discussion with Peter about three years ago. <laughs> um, I, uh, at least in my, to my way of thinking, it's there now. But I would review it if, 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 if I'd review it every year to see whether I still think it's appropriate. It might, might very well move up as time goes on. I, I'm not. Uh, I, I hope you don't hear any of us up here declaring success. Um, we think we've got a long way to go. I think what you ought to hear us saying is that. We've made a good start, and we're going to need to be um, firm in the next couple of years to keep from the, to, to withstand some of the obvious pressures from some segments of the coaching community not to ease up on standards. But I agree with you that 29 or 45 percent is not where I would like to be, but I think it's a good start in the right direction. Thank you.
10: Kevin, we uh, look forward to hearing from you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I think my assignment is to provide you with a bit of a case study of how this new data and information uh, can not only be used as a management tool at the institutional level, but also within the NCAA structure and uh, coming up with ideas and uh, possible approaches to spur uh, improvement in academic performance of student athletes in certain sports or certain subsections. Um, I am here representing the uh, Baseball Academic Enhancement Working Group, as President Harrison said earlier. He was also part of that group. I was not the chairperson of the group. Ron Wellman, the director of athletics at Wake Forest chaired this group. and. Uh, We had a very challenging assignment, I think, because it was clear to us from the outset that um, the board of directors of the NCAA uh, had sort of had enough um, with uh, some of the issues going on surrounding the sport of baseball. Um, There was a feeling that too many games were being played, that too much activity was being crowded into the spring semester. And uh, we were told uh, very directly as a group uh, sort of representing the baseball community that um, if we didn't come up with some solutions um, or some ideas for change, that the sport would indeed um, have its number of games reduced dramatically um, by the NSA board. So you have to sort of understand the context under which uh, this group came together. It was a very broad-based committee of people, um, commissioners, faculty representatives, coaches. We had very good input from... Uh, major college uh, coaches that were part of this process, and and I think in that regard, um, it was unique to some extent in that it was not a typical um, NCAA committee, if you will, but rather a group of people who all had uh, been involved with the sport over the years, um, or whose institutions were uh, uh, very significantly involved in having had high levels of success in uh, collegiate baseball at the Division I level. Um, It was also challenging, however, because I think we all uh, realized that we were functioning with really only two years of APR data at the point we were starting. Um, So we were a little bit unsure about uh, the data, although the trends were becoming very apparent. We also knew that the sport had some very unique qualities. Um, Without a doubt, baseball players have a very high level of professional aspiration. It is a sport, um, in, in many respects, unlike others, in that there is an extensive minor league professional system, which feeds the major league system, and annually, over 600 uh, student athletes in Division I are either drafted or signed as free agents in professional baseball. So it was unique in that regard, and a lot of the behaviors that we were seeing um, seem to be driven by this um, unique environment, and the rules surrounding how the draft would work, by the way, were a significant factor in uh, some of the things that were occurring with baseball. Um, and th- In that regard, I think uh, there was also one important distinction about baseball that we wrestled with throughout this process that differentiates it from a sport like basketball in the sense that uh, <coughs> it is a sport that has very low financial aid for student athletes, one of the so-called equivalency sports and uh, many of the students participating in the sport are doing so with uh, relatively low financial aid packages. Um, Despite all of that, I thought we had very good discussion throughout our process. Uh, The group was very much focused on uh, meeting the charge we received from the NCAA board and uh, the coaches in particular that participated in our process, including the uh, executive director of the American Baseball Coaches Association, approached it not from the standpoint of uh, we don't want change, but rather um, what can we do that makes sense for the sport um, that could be helpful in spurring academic improvement. Uh, The research was very compelling, I think. Uh, While we only had uh, a couple of years of data, um, the work of Todd Petter and his staff, uh, and as Kevin Wynn said a little while ago, we really are getting a lot more information than we have ever had before and taking a look in a sport-specific way. And uh, I'll just mention a few of these things. I know you have our report in your packet, and I won't belabor this, but let me hit a few of the highlights. Um, Baseball's APR um, numbers look very similar to football and to men's basketball, uh, despite the fact that the baseball student athlete on the front end appears to come into the system much better prepared. Test scores generally higher, uh, better performance in, in GPA and core courses. Um, Baseball student athletes, uh, however, despite that fact, were underperforming uh, rather dramatically in credit hour production, um, even compared to football and men's basketball. And this was particularly true in season, in the the spring, when uh, the primary college baseball season occurs. But we also saw a pattern of very little academic work being attempted in the summertime which, again, is one of the unique features of the sport because of the the summer baseball leagues, which exist, which are part of uh, kind of, again, that feeder system uh, to the professional leagues. Um, The fall term was essentially being used to get well academically. So what we we clearly could see from the information provided by the research staff was very little effort going into academic work in the spring and summer, and then uh, the fall term being used as a way to Um, sort of get well, if you will, academically, which of course is a real problem with a term-by-term measurement system like the APR. We also saw lots of player movement in the sport. Again, this is a sport with low levels of financial aid, and so therefore it is unlike football and basketball, and athletes have the ability to transfer on a one-time basis and be immediately eligible at another institution. We saw twice as many transfers in this sport as in the sport of football and other men's sports, with the exception of uh, with the exception of bas- men's basketball. We also saw lots of two-year college transfers in the sport. Again, this I think is is to some extent influenced by the professional draft, because a young man can go from our system back to the junior colleges and become and be redrafted essentially under the rules of Major League Baseball. Um, so there's a compelling reason if you don't like your playing time or you, you think you may want to try the professional route sooner to return to the JC ranks, see if you can improve your draft status. If you didn't like when you were drafted then, you may come back into our, our system again. Um, so we saw over 18% of the baseball players in the sport were coming out of the two-year college system. Uh, contrast that with football where only 8% of uh, athletes are junior college transfers. Unfortunately, these transfers don't perform as well academically. The data is very clear in that regard. They lose twice as many eligibility and retention points as do uh, transfer students or 4-4 type transfers. Another factor that was a concern for us was the free agent mentality, for lack of a better term, that seemed to be related to the financial aid structure. Uh, some large squad-sized teams, um, seemed to be sort of going through a system that was a, a de facto tryout system in which athletes were um, being coming in with low promises of financial aid. And uh, if they didn't like what was occurring um, with playing time or they didn't prove to be the most successful player, they were then uh, moving on in the structure. And we heard numerous stories from our coaches that were part of our, our panel about the difficulties of managing uh, the financial aid structure and the kind of attitudes that it created both for coaches but also for for the uh, athletes themselves. So our proposals uh, are really are an attempt to address uh, these problems that we saw as a uh, part of the data that was available to us. I'm not going to read them to you, but I'll try to hit a few highlights regarding them. The first thing we, we wanted to try to focus on was to slow down player movement. And in order to do so, we really felt like it was important that the financial aid structure be changed in the sport. We also thought that it was necessary for squad size limitations to be put in place and that the uh, one-time transfer exception in the sport of baseball needed to be eliminated so that um, athletes in this sport were subject to a year in residence if they desired to transfer at the institution they would be moving to. We also felt that we needed to do some things to spur progress toward a degree by requiring certification in the fall term for spring eligibility to try to get out of this pattern that I mentioned earlier of um, athletes using the fall term in essence to get healthy. So requiring fall term certification in order to be eligible to compete in the spring and therefore essentially to have to do more in the spring term and in the the summer term if you're having academic difficulties. This same proposal also helps to address the problem with two-year college transfers in the sense that it, uh, a transfer at mid, mid-year would not be eligible to immediately compete in the sport in, in the spring. So again, another measure to try to slow down um, the transfer uh, situations in <coughs> the sport. And finally, our proposals include trying to address some time demand issues for underperforming um, teams. We did not see a direct correlation, interestingly enough, between the number of games played and poor APR performance. However there is no question from the feedback from student athletes that was provided through some MCAA research that while you couldn't draw a direct correlation, there's no question that the number of games being played, the time demands associated with the sport in the spring make it very difficult to perform. Um, at an optimum level academically, and so therefore we felt it was important that the APR performance be linked to the number of games a team is able to play and the number of of competitive dates it essentially has available to it in the spring term. And we've asked that the Committee on Academic Performance take that up as a a possible additional part of its structure, a penalty structure in essence related to the sport, a 10% reduction is what we proposed for teams that are struggling um, academically. These proposals, uh, proposals I think, really represented a consensus of our group after a lot of discussion and debate. Uh, We were well aware um, that they would be controversial, but we really felt that they were responsive to the charge uh, that we received, and very importantly, I think we believe they fit together as a package. I think I would speak for all of the members of our working group in saying that um, if we we felt like um, the financial aid piece couldn't be addressed, we would have struggled a a great deal to support the idea of eliminating the one-time transfer exception in the sport, just out of fairness um, to the student-athletes involved. I must tell you that I was a bit surprised that the Board of Directors chose to adopt these proposals as emergency legislation under its authority at its most recent meeting. Uh, Having said that, I think given the criticism that I have seen that's emerged regarding the package of proposals that we've advanced, among some in the membership, I I think it's probably true that the only way this could have moved forward as a package is uh, through some kind of action of, of that nature from the Board. Since the board's action, there has been a fair amount of talk uh, that's surfacing about the potential of an override effort um, relative to these proposals. For those of you who don't know, within the NCAA structure, it is uh, permissible for institutions or conferences to submit requests for actions of the board to be reviewed and potentially voted on at an NCAA convention on a one-institution, one-vote basis. I think it takes, as in 100 institutions to bring forward such a request. Um, I think what we're seeing here obviously is a reaction to these uh, proposals being adopted by the board in this manner without a lot of membership debate, but I think you're also seeing examples of the diverse nature of the MCA membership uh, being demonstrated uh, through some of this uh, talk about overrides. For example, there are some institutions that don't like the cost implications of requiring a 33% aid package um, for athletics aid for a baseball player. And it would not surprise me if we don't see this issue come down to a uh, convention vote. Um, uh, Or perhaps the board will have to go back and take a look at some of its component parts of this package. I also have seen a lot said recently in the media about unintended consequences of packages like this. Um, I certainly understand that these proposals have the potential to change the nature of college baseball. For example, it is entirely possible that we will see fewer opportunities for aspiring baseball players as walk-ons or as low-level aid recipients in the sport. I also understand that the sport could be more costly to operate and therefore may cause some institutions to question uh, the commitment to the sport. It strikes me, however, that for any major policy change, there are always going to be trade-offs, and uh, while this package may not be perfect, I think it is in the best interest of the sport in that it should result in a better environment for academic performance and therefore, uh, in my opinion, at least a much more comfortable fit uh, within the primary mission of our institutions. So thanks for your opportunity here to brief you about our package. Kevin, would it take a majority of the... uh,
1: division one institutions to overturn?
10: Yes, and I'm not exactly sure of uh, how this package would be treated in an an override discussion, whether only parts of it would be considered or whether the full package. Uh, I know from my standpoint in the working group, I would not want to see pieces of it uh, plucked out, as I said earlier. It's
3: possible, uh,
10: ideally it it would have to go as a package, but there is a,
3: a possibility that the board based on input that it receives, could have an opportunity to separate out a portion of it. Um, I think most people would not like that. It would take, not a simple majority, but I think it's a five-eighths vote of the Division I membership, so you have to have kind of overwhelming support of everyone in attendance at the meeting in January to to do the override.
4: But the more likely approach would be just to cherry-pick one particular item and try to get it changed through.
10: Yeah, I think like most it. of the discussion that I've seen so far really does focus on that financial aid yeah. piece. Whether or not the 33% number is too high, we had a lot of debate about that within our within our group, and um, this is kind of where we came out as a consensus. L-
1: Lenny, will you? No, I'm, no. Okay.
4: Yes.
11: I, I just have a clarification question on the APR. If, and maybe someone else can answer it, if a if a student athlete who has been admitted with all the right recruiting practices but at some point does something that student athlete shouldn't have done and is removed from the team, that impacts the APR rate. How, how is that taken into account if the coach does the right thing? Doesn't this incense the coach not to do the right thing and remove the kid from the team in some cases?
3: Um, well, the first thing that we tell a coach is you need to make decisions that are in the best interest of your team and that may run counter to your APR point. But Again, remember there's a lot of points that can be lost without encountering a problem. If you have a disciplinary problem, you need to treat that problem as you would without thinking of your APR. Having said that, um, and we have had coaches that send in letters that say, you shouldn't hold me accountable. If I brought in a young man who uh, got in trouble with campus police and was let off school, The APR does not give relief for that. You you lose a point. That student was not retained. You lose that particular point because that is believed to be within the control of the student and that's how the committee has approached that at this point in time. They're not simply going to say, you know, I didn't know that this was a bad apple. What (laughs) what we hope for is you don't have a lot of those. If you do have a lot of those, you've got a systemic problem. But if it's only one, I think that's the, the feeling of the committee at this time. You know, w- uh,
1: w- one issue that I keep hearing, from, particularly from basketball coaches, is that uh, a student athlete is going to go into the pros, or has used up his eligibility in, is in his final spring, um, has to go to wor- uh, trial camps and workouts, so they just quit going to school. And um, uh, th- th- of course, they're going to plunk that semester's work. and. And I just, is that a real problem? Statistically, is it relatively modest and it doesn't really affect the um, APR in any significant way? And are we
3: seeing any change
1: behaviors
3: in that regard? That's a really, really good point. And keep in mind, we're talking about 95,000 student athletes in the cohort. And out of that, in pro departures, we had 494 last year that were approved, and the issue is, is
1: mm-hmm. that
3: just? on basketball had 47. 47. Okay, yeah, but we're finding this is—I think this is a great news story. The vast majority of our students who elect to go and take a professional opportunity are finishing their eligibility report point. It's over 70 percent for all sports, and basketball went from 50 percent or maybe I'm not, we're above 50% this year. So they're clearly showing it's possible, even if you want to go and pursue a professional opportunity, you can get your eligibility point. And you all may have read through some of the clips I think right. that Amy said, I'm really encouraged that our coaches are actively involved with these young people right. in, in saying, you know you owe it to yourself, you owe it to your teammates, you owe it to all of us to stay in school, because when you come back, and we want you to come back, you'll be that much further along. So that's a good news story. It, it really is. Mike, One, you want?
7: Yeah, what, one other point that needs to be made is that uh, the NCAA and, and most of the major 1A uh, teams now make it possible for young people to come in the summer before they start school and you can get six hours. You have to have 12 hours to have full financial aid most places. If you stay in the summers, as most players do now, and you just take one course of three hours each, if you take 6, 12, 3, 12, all the way through like that, you don't even need the last semester. Because you've you've accumulated over 120 hours before you get there. If, if, If you put down the typical opportunity flow today. It's an entirely different schedule than the one that most of us went to school on. So you have to factor that into the equation and and the notion that we're in trouble only because 47 people left in the last semester to go to the Combine. Uh, If you look at the numbers, it just doesn't wash. Good point.
9: Other questions?
2: Yes, please, Bill.
9: Uh when it comes to uh looking at the uh, the data on the on the teams for next year, uh you uh, indicated uh, in this report two hundred and seventy-eight teams uh even with a thousand mm-hmm. in the, in this year, two thousand six, seven, are not going to be able to meet the historical uh expectations and therefore there'll be penalties And then there are going to be uh eighty six teams that even if they have a 1,000, aren't going to be able to reach the 900. Uh, that enforcement across those historical penalties will be consistent regardless of the school, the, the name, the reputation? Are we likely to see efforts to try to diminish the impact of those penalties? President,
2: can certainly speak Sure, we're going to see efforts to do it. I hope that we're consistent and clear across uh, borders we um, that is to say, whether you're big name school or small name school, our intent is to be uh, consistent in the way we hand out penalties. We do, as Kevin pointed out, have a number of measurements that involve improvement and, and amount of resources and the like but um, i I think you will s- at least from my point of view you're going to see us uh, handle the schools with big names in exactly the same way we'd handle anybody else. I think the
4: process, if you just sort of predicted it out, you would say that uh, after a number of schools start losing some scholarships that have uh, very high-profile programs, let's say in basketball, you're going to see supporters of that program start petitioning presidents and uh, trying to put pressure on presidents that gets translated into conferences, gets translated in the board of directors of the NCAA on some of these things. And I think it really behooves the Knight Commission to be very strong in what we uh, say publicly and try to say it over and over again, uh, the importance of maintaining this, the importance of uh, sustaining efforts to change. Uh, the focus of different schools on graduating their athletes and so on, and for us not to uh, let up one bit, because I think this is there's sort of a uh, uh, wall of fire we're going to have to go through over these next two years and come through it. And then I think everything will be uh, not easier, but more consistent going forward. And you're already seeing behavior change. You're already seeing improvements, as Kevin showed, uh, there, uh, even in these early stages, and I think one of the, the one of the voices that will help individual presidents when supporters of their programs that are losing scholarships or may even lose postseason opportunities. One of the these presidents are going to need support, and the Knight Commission is one of those uh, sources that can provide that support. And so I hope we are very adamant in terms of how we persistently. Uh, try to reinforce the efforts of individual presidents, particularly as they come under pressure from their constituencies. Gerald, that's such an important point. uh, We need to
1: be strong in our support of what the NCAA is doing. Yes, Jack. Uh,
6: Lessons learned from the baseball experience as we reflect on the very impressive package of recommendations that came out of that experience it does look like it's somewhat idiosyncratic to the sport of baseball, and I was just curious as you've reflected on it, were there analogies that could be drawn that might be useful in looking at some of the challenges, for example, in football or basketball?
10: I think there are some some similarities, but there are also quite a few differences, and uh, I think the good news is that um, the data that is being gathered um, can be a real tool to be looked at and utilized on a sport by sport basis. Um, I do know that um, in men's basketball, for example, there is a high level of professional aspiration among the participants there, just as there is in baseball. However, um, the pro basketball structure um, is, is a much different one. Um, I think the youth culture in the sport of basketball is much different. Um, There are a variety of issues that would cause one not to just look at these proposals and say, um, you know, you can sort of in a cookie-cutter way make them apply um, to a sport like men's basketball. However, I I do believe that a a group in a similar fashion uh, to the baseball group that was constructed could take using the information that is increasingly becoming available and uh, take a a hard look at some ideas in in some of the other sports as well.
5: Yes, Pete. The prospect of the convention override, uh, total or partial, is to me very disturbing. I I recall a few years ago, and perhaps Mike, Carol, you can help me here, we in the board uh, approved, I think it was an increase in the number of scholarships in in several women's sports. And it didn't involve a cost. And it was overridden, as I recall. Yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, when, when the NCAA takes actions, when the board takes actions that mandate expenditures uh, on the part of member institutions, they'd get their backs up and override becomes a real possibility.
7: I, I believe it was women's soccer and gymnastics.
2: There were three sports. I think it was volleyball, gymnastics and soccer and and volleyball and gymnastics were overridden and soccer was approved. Carol? It is interesting though
11: to think about the way the board is constructed. There's a representative of each of the conferences sitting around that table. So theoretically you ought to be able to uh, create a conversation among presidents perhaps even supported by the Knight Commission that this is inappropriate to think about overriding because each one of those schools is theoretically represented in the vote at the board level. So you've you've got an opportunity here I think for some pretty deep discussion about the leadership role both from the Knight Commission through the board and at the level of the, the conferences because often the override initiatives are orchestrated at the conference level and of course presidents hire those commissioners and theoretically run those conferences.
1: <laughs> theoretically. Uh, one, one other uh, question I had was you mentioned I think there were 135 or so schools that got waivers uh, and, and uh, th- th- this year from the uh, analysis or the, the penalties. What is the prospect going forward? Will they continue to get waivers uh, or at some point do they get folded into the um, system?
3: Uh, Well, improvement is going to continue to be a critical component. I I think the commitment from certainly the Committee on Academic Performance is that if you see meaningful improvement and a plan that uh, makes sense um, and that is not just a one-year plan, but something that says we as an institution are committing ourselves to improving this team's APR from here to there. We're going to give them an opportunity to do that. And often that comes in the form of a conditional approval. Last year as an example, I can pick out 10 institutions that received a conditional approval. We said, okay, you've got a new coach, you've got new systems in place, we're going to give you an opportunity for this to work. Five of them did it, and five of them met the conditions, and that's great, they're on their way. Five did not, and if you do not meet it, you then get the penalty that you held in condition. And I would imagine that that's going to continue to be the structure. It's a good faith effort coming from the president AD coach, and it really is a meaningful plan for change. I think the position here has been try to allow them an opportunity to change behavior. That's what we're about, and do so through kind of this conditional approach.
6: Yes?
13: Uh, I, for one, uh, have been uh, quite impressed with the uh, report of this working group, and um, I think it might be appropriate for the commission, the Knight Commission, to uh, express its um, appreciation and commendation, uh, if not support, for this particular approach as an important step in the overall goal that we have in terms of uh, reform. Uh, Because I think uh, it needs recognition that it's not just them and the NCAA, but also those of us who have been watching and pressing for a reform in a variety of arenas. Uh, This particular one having been so well generated by the coaches themselves and coming forward with what is obviously a, a very dramatic change, uh, is something that I think is worthwhile for us to sort of say, here, here, this is worth doing. So very well. good point. Now, Walt, uh,
4: particularly, uh, meets with us about as much as we ought to have an auxiliary membership kind of left, <laughs> and I know that, you've got all your NCAA meetings, and, and uh, you've always been responsive to us, and we appreciate it. Is, uh This is uh, one of those questions that uh, you hope the answer is. There's no real need to, but have you seen any indication that that academic data being reported, that we might ought to have an auditing program for it, or do you basically get that it's a part of the whole academic enterprise, the institution outside of athletics enough that, uh, uh, you know, that it's accurate? Have you done any auditing at all?
3: Yeah, we we actually have, and uh, that proved to be very helpful. Fifteen institutions, some were identified because we, quite frankly, had some issues with the the data, at least thought we did. Others were done randomly, and that was an important provision to make sure schools know they could get tapped on the shoulder at any time. Uh, The cap just agreed to increase that, I think, to maybe twenty-five this next year. Um, We also are putting on audit, those will be randomly reviewed. Twenty-five, some will actually be audited again. And some will be the random uh, uh, teams that we're going to pick out, or schools that we're going to pick out. Um, but I will tell you that one of the things that we're emphasizing this year is kind of a broad-based curriculum that we're providing to institutions, the folks on campus who help uh, administer the APR and, and provide those numbers um, to make sure that they're up to speed with with the information. We've got major sessions going on, some devoted entire day to just this. So. You know, we have a pretty good level of confidence as we kind of screen the data with Todd and others' help um, that we can pull out problems and we call those folks here that we say, you know, this, this doesn't look like it makes sense and we need to, to, to work them through, so um, but we're going to continue to do the audit function. That's proven to be pretty helpful. Yes, Val. Uh,
8: since at least some measure of success seems to be dependent on the readiness of the student-athletes when they come in. Um, you know, either from a, just an academic standpoint or just a mental preparation standpoint, do, do any of you think that more could be done, and if so, what might that be um, in terms of working together with high school leadership or with the leadership of non-scholastic sports outlets um, to at least bring everybody onto the same page in terms of, you know, what kids are you know, learning, being told, um, you know, whether it's in, a, in in that outlet itself or in a summer program, a supplemental program, so that, you know, as these, as these players go from one level to the next, um, you know, they're, they're kind of, it's all brought together in some way rather than just being sort of abrupt steps. Um, because certainly, you know, we spoke about basketball, but, you know, that is an important It's an important subject and there's some dialogue going on now within the basketball community about just that step because many of these players don't have the benefit of the four full years of college, so if they're not getting it from someplace else, they're not getting it at all. So I guess, you know, I'm just sort of wondering if any of you have given any thought to, you know, what's happening not just within the NCAA environment once they get in and how to help them get out of that, but what happens before they get there so that their chances of succeeding within the NCO environment are enhanced.
10: Well, I do know that in uh, basketball, uh, we have had some discussions uh, regarding the uh, youth environment in the sport. Uh, Lynn Elmore has been part of a a group that has been talking some about, you know, what could be done structurally to try to see that the the rising basketball player uh, isn't receiving all of uh, his information from coaches who have no connection to the scholastic system or the educational system generally. So there's some of that kind of dialogue going on. Um, I don't know that it has yet produced um, concrete proposals for change, but we're, we're taking a look at it um, in that way. Um, I do know there have been ongoing educational efforts within the secondary school community. I don't, you guys, have, Kevin, may need to speak to that.
3: It, that, it's, a, it's a great question and it's, a, it's, the, it's just a great challenge that we have. Here we are a higher ed organization and yet you realize that the folks coming in need to be prepared as we continue to ratchet up the standards. I'll give you one example here very recently where we're encouraging students to graduate high school in eight semesters and the board just adopted a rule that does that and, and the pushback that we've received on that has been extraordinary this year. Um, because what we're saying is you need to start taking academic courses in the ninth grade in order to get eligible. You don't just go along and then figure out the light bulb comes on as a junior and now I go and as a standard practice a certain group goes and takes a fifth year of high school. That That's the type of thing that the NCAA from a policy tries to reach down low and say this is how you get yourself prepared. But again, the pushback that you receive President Harris said, "Anytime you introduce that kind of change, everyone can come up with a what if.' We feel like we're in a situation where we can handle those on an individual basis. If you have a legitimate student that repeated the ninth grade, I just don't know how legitimate it is to repeat the twelfth grade. I don't I just you don't see that profile, but we had that going on in our structure. So, you know, we're doing the best we can from a regulatory side. Um, how we help the culture of our secondary school students to understanding what it takes." Um, that's probably a, a, a topic for a, a, even a broader commission than this.
2: Just one uh, overall comment. I, uh, because of my position, I've been invited by a number of superintendents' groups in Connecticut to talk about academic changes, and, and I find that these individuals who you would think would be fairly well informed are not. So it seems to me this is one of those cases where uh, you can't over communicate. I mean, we should work as hard as we can to help people both at the superintendent's level and guidance counselor level and down into the middle school that um, it's important to get students started on the right path. And I think that's a really good
1: point. then uh, I think we're going to have to bring this
5: session to a close. May I return to Cliff Warden's uh, suggestion and ask if you would welcome a motion that would enable the Knight Commission to formally commend the Baseball Academic Enhancement Working Group for its work and commend the Division I a Director for accepting the recommendations of that group. I do believe there's going to be a public uh, struggle playing itself out finally in the Convention floor uh, over an override. And if we, the Commission, believe in what's being suggested here, then maybe we should publicly declare our support for it. I'll take that as a motion. Is there That's a second? Th- let's make the motion and I'll second the motion.
1: Uh, any uh, discussion? All in favor please say aye. 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 Uh, We're going to let Amy have the last uh, word here. She has a question. too.
11: Well I really just wanted to give Kevin an opportunity to uh, address one of the other success stories that I've heard you say statistically with regard to uh, the number of athletes who have now returned to their institutions after that six year window in which which the uh, statistics are kept but as you know as part of the system uh, institutions can earn bonus points when those athletes do return, and I think what you've seen over the past three years points to some pretty aggressive measures on the parts of institutions to help those athletes succeed in achieving their degrees.
3: for that I, f- I forgot to mention that over the last three years, 2,500 student athletes have come back and earned a degree who had left campus without a degree at the encouragement of the institution, and that's a that's a great story. That's people coming back and finishing what they started and so we're very encouraged by, by that. What is the bonus that contributes to the APL? You just get a one point in your uh, numerator. You just get one bonus point. First student athlete. First student athlete. So it's not going to skew the numbers terribly but th- each one of those represent a real success story and that's, that's good. Well let me uh,
1: thank the, the, the panelists uh, not only for being here today and uh, providing such uh, excellent uh, presentations, but uh, for all the hard work that uh, you represent uh, from the NCAA on this uh, this undertaking. It's, uh, w- as we know, it's been going on for five or six years, and I think it's very encouraging to see where we've gotten to at this point, and I uh, uh, just hope that uh, it will continue to lead to ever better results. But we do thank you for your time today.
0: This podcast is a recording from the May 14, 2007 meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. For more information, visit www.knightcommission.org.